not a matter of few words. They make the run for the family, except for their dad, and they like to talk. And so PJ has always been a talker, no matter what, what he's done. He was in um, my choir, beautiful voice, as you are aware of if you've been to his masses. And he was also in my talent and gifted classes. And I remember two incidences before we had a, one of those dinners, mystery dinners. And guess who played Sherlock? <laughs> <laughs> he dressed up for the case, acted the part really well. He also then we had a board game that we made for the kids to do a religious board game to call the gym. And PJ was our Moses to get them across the river. And so PJ loves to act, as you are sure a lot of where he loves to act. He loves to go into costume. Even now, if you get on Facebook or whatever, you'll see him in a costume here and there. Um, and he likes to write. He had a novel that he wrote. He's a Dowling graduate of 2001, went in for English, History, and, and Theology at Morris, and um, he uh, had a little, little bit of discerning to do in between all this time, but ended up in the Order of Preachers um, in 2006, um, where he was at the St. Dominic Priory of Denver from 2006 to 2011 and became Friar Dominic Patrick. So when he said he was Father Patrick or Dominic, we're all like, oh no. We don't know him as Father Dominic, we know him as PJ. Because PJ was one of those people you saw in church all the time, and he always had a right face to go with it. He was ordained on May 14th of 2011 at St. Pius in St. Louis. That's right. Worked at the St. Augustine Institute of Theology. Went to Rome and finally came back home to Des Moines in 2017, where he's at Christ the King. Um, and he, they love it over there. He's um, very, he speaks all these four languages that I'm aware of. He's highly intelligent, has been all of his life. He has a very strong sense of his Irish heritage, and will use some Irish jokes from time to time. Um, he adores his niece, Ellie, and of course, he looks up to his big sis, Colleen. Um, he relaxes at night with his little dog, Reggie, and uh, probably an Irish drink or two with that. <laughs> <laughs> He's always had a love of God and has come to share some of his stories tonight with us. So, without further ado, Father PJ. Thank you, Barb, and thanks to Father Raphael and the whole team here for the invitation tonight. I'm very, very grateful. So happy to see many familiar faces that I haven't seen in a bit, and some new ones too. Um, yeah, this is home, and, uh, and it's good to be able to, to come home. Most of at least the initial reflections that I have for tonight were really born right over there, third pew from the back, or second, depending on which mass and how big a fight mom was in with the lady in front of us at the time. But, um, but I, uh, I, my faith, my vocation, uh, in large measure, my own sense of self was really formed here. And I owe a lot of that to many of you. So this is as much a, a song of thanksgiving as, as anything else tonight. Here's how I want us to frame our reflections. So, so uh, 
Barb and Father Raphael explain this as part of this ongoing series uh, for the Eucharistic revival to sort of meditate and pray upon the role of the Eucharist in our lives. The way that I want to do that is reflect on the way that my own understanding and relationship, understanding of and relationship with Jesus and the Holy Eucharist has changed over the course of my life. And it's had several distinct kind of moments or shifts. Um, And to give space uh, for any of you to ask questions or share that yourself. I want to frame it, though, so we're, 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 we're fortunate to be able to do this uh, in, a, in a kind of a, a unique forum. I'm not sure it's struck anyone yet why this is significant. We're meditating on the mystery of the Holy Eucharist in the presence of the Holy Eucharist. And so recognizing sort of the impact of that, I'd like to frame our reflections in prayer. And what I'd really like for us to do is do that in the context of the rosary. Um, sometimes uh, we think of the rosary not as a Eucharistic devotion because the bulk of the prayers are directed to Our Lady rather than to our Lord. But as Father Raphael just said, especially in these waning days of Advent, the Church kind of amps its energy up. And while on the front end we've been paying a lot of attention to the character of the Baptists, now we're really focused on the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph in the last days as they travel to Bethlehem. My place tonight, uh, we're having um, posadas, and the posadas are a, are a Mexican tradition of uh, sort of journeying with the Holy Family uh, in, in those last days. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a, I call it the Stations of the Crib, because it's a walking meditation just like the Stations of the Cross. Uh, back in Mexico, this wouldn't happen at church. This would actually happen, you'd go from house to house, and somebody's picked ahead of time to be the house that says, yeah, you can stay the night, which really just means you have to throw the party, right? But, um, but, but, I, but, I, but I want this reflection to be both Eucharistic and Marian. And so, so basically what we're going to do is we're going to say a decade of the rosary, and I'm going to offer uh, a brief sort of five-minute reflection. Give us two or three minutes to quiet ourselves, and then open the space for any questions or comments on that. We're just going to do that five times. And by the time is right, it should keep us right at about an hour. Sound good? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered and crucified, was crucified by His Spirit. He descended to the dead, on the third day He rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Increase in faith, O maturity, and the intentions of the Holy Father. And we are in full grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed are thou, and so blessed is the fruit of thy Jesus.
on Sunday, but because we're in Advent, we're going to focus on the joyful mystery. The first joyful mystery, the Annunciation. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Mary, for grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, now, and it shall be, world without end. O my Jesus, there is no gift so great as the Holy Eucharist, for if there were, God would have already given it to us. He has already given us the best, his very self. St. John Vianney. So like I said, my faith was really formed right over there. And I'm just old enough that the custom with which we're now pretty familiar of inviting non-communicants forward for a blessing at communion time hadn't been introduced yet. And so I have no memories of being anywhere near up here before my first Holy Communion. But I have very distinct memories of being left in that pew during Holy Communion and of Mark and I getting into trouble. Specifically, I remember taking out all of the missalettes and making towers or stacks with them, and somebody else would have to put back in. And, um, and uh, you know, fooling around with the kid in the pew next to me or whatever. As time went on, I became more and more aware, like, the, the grown-ups weren't just going to do something, but they were, like, getting something. And they would come back, and at least over there, everybody seemed pretty focused or intent on something. And I remember one time asking Dad, what is it that you're going up there to get? And I don't know what was going on in poor Dad's life at the time. Um, maybe things were up in the store or whatever, but 
he turned and he looked at me. At least in my memory, he had tears in his eyes. And he said, everything. It's everything. Now, I didn't have context for that, six or seven or whatever. But it told me that this was really important for my mom and my dad. And because it was really important for my mom and my dad, it was really important for me. That's kind of the most basic intuition here. When we say faith is caught, not taught, that's what we're talking about, right? So you can teach really well. You can give all kinds of didactic presentations. You can do things on a blackboard or something. But none of that's going to move, right? It's, it's, it's the experience of something changing someone and seeing the experience of something changing someone that wants you to want the thing yourself. And so, so seeing that this was significant for my parents made this significant for me. Another thing which my dad did, which made a big impression on me, and this might embarrass him a little, sorry, Pops, um, is that early on, I noticed that occasionally he would refrain from Holy Communion. And as I got older, I realized this always coincided with Holy Days that he couldn't get off work for. But that made a big impression on me because I realized after the fact that he was trying to get himself to confession before he went back to communion, which was the right thing to do, but that this thing was so important to him that there were times he would withhold himself, that it was possible to love something so much that sometimes we take a step back from it out of respect. And that, that startled me, because frankly, I, at that point, we didn't see a lot of people that were refraining from communion. There's a balance here, right? You, know, you don't want a situation like I had on Guadalupe, where I had 850 people in the church and 200 people received communion. That's a different problem. But, uh, but you, you do want a healthy respect for what's happening, and so uh, a time or a period to sort of withdraw or pause. My first communion... I don't remember especially well. I know that it happened. I have the pictures from back there. But the, the first real impression I had of the Eucharist, and, and I think it coincides more or less with the day of my first communion, was under the title of gift. And that's how I want us to consider this at the outset. Communion as gift, or Eucharist as gift. Gift given to the church by the Lord and gift brought by, by the church to the world. Okay. So when we first receive communion for the first time, it is necessarily a gift. It's not an accident that we receive communion. There are Protestant traditions that will talk in, in the language of taking communion. We don't do that on purpose. It's always received, and even the priest who's celebrating receives from the Lord himself. It's the reason the prayer the priest says for his own communion is slightly different than what he says for all of you, because it's, it's as though Jesus is the one distributing communion directly to the priest. There are lots of reasons that, uh, that I think um, the, 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 the sort of understanding communion under the species of gift is important, but I think the reason it stuck for me was uh, Father Peters, Father Mike Peters, who's the one who preached the day of my first Holy Communion, said to us, kiddos, you're going to get all kinds of gifts when you go home today, which for most of us is probably true, First Communion Day, right? But the most important gift you'll receive, the most important gift you'll ever receive is the one you receive here. And it was precisely, so, so then, sort of watching my mom and my dad, my sister, and, and the rest of the family's pattern relative to communion, it was watching them um, uh, pay attention 
prepare and withhold, I think that really made this grow in me. It was also a gift. Dad was especially strong in this for us, and it made a deep impression. It was also a gift which had to be prepared for. That wasn't something I'd ever experienced. You didn't really prepare for your birthday gifts. They just kind of showed up, right? But, but it was a gift that had to be prepared for. And then, just like you write a thank you note to somebody after they send you a gift in the mail or something, it was a gift to be thanked for. And so we were the weirdos. I don't know, there were like maybe five families in the parish at the time, but after Mass, we'd always stay in our pew just for two or three minutes, but to make a quick Thanksgiving. And that made a deep, deep impression on me because it showed me that what was being given lived in me now in a different way. St. Teresa of Avila says, um, when, when you receive Holy Communion, close the eyes of your body so that you can see with the eyes of your heart and dwell with the Lord who now dwells within you. But those, those first moments after Holy Communion are very precious. Now, sometimes we set these things at odds. There's typically a communion hymn or an anaphon or something being sung. Say, well, I want my quiet time with Jesus. Well, I want my... It's not about that. That This isn't an either-or sort of situation. And it's not Jesus or the people around me. It's both. But aren't some of the most precious moments we spend with one another, especially those we love best, our closest family members and friends, just in the quiet, being grateful? So what could possibly be more natural than giving thanks? Since that time, I have had hundreds, maybe thousands of experiences of bringing Holy Communion to people not at church, whether that's uh, the homebound, sick, nursing homes, hospitals, or very often actually celebrating Mass in nursing homes or hospitals or hospital rooms. The first several years of my priesthood, most of the Masses that I celebrated, it seemed like, were in a hospital room with my mom or on the secretary in our living room. Sometimes, even more recently, on the tailgate of a pickup for... uh, Ellie's dad's funeral. Um, But very, very often, when this happens, the person who's most physically distant from the community, because they're stuck at home, because they're sick, because whatever, they can recognize the giftedness and the undeserved giftedness of the Eucharist in a way that those of us that are around it all the time can't. Can become very easily just what we do and not what we've been given which is why after we've received, we should close our eyes and learn to see with the eyes of our heart. So, for just a couple of minutes, ponder these. What was my first basic intuition about the Holy Eucharist? What was the first sense that I had of what was happening up here? How did that come about? Who was most responsible? I talked about my mom and my dad and my sister. Maybe it was somebody else for you. And how do I understand the Eucharist now, specifically, as gift?
Any thoughts from the group? Anybody want to share first impression? Experience is here. It's, it, 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 I want you, right, make sure this stuff is happening on the inside. The reason I associated this with the mystery of enunciation, right, is because Mary, who's the first one to experience Jesus in the flesh, experiences the Lord first as gift. First as gift. Later is lots of other things, too. Like a lot of kids, maybe not always as gift. <laughs> but... But, but first and foremost, as gift, as unmerited gift, as unwarranted gift. All right. I'm going to shift our attention then. The visitation, the mystery of, of, of Mary's going to visit Elizabeth, immediately connects the church by way of, of uh, communion, right? So the moment Mary receives Jesus into her womb, she goes out to connect with somebody else, and somebody else who is, of course, uniquely connected to our Lord himself. So as we pray over this mystery of the visitation, think about those ways in which the Eucharist has communed you, has united you with other people, maybe especially in unexpected ways. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is Fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. O oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. 
The Eucharist is indeed the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sins and whom the Father in his goodness raised from the dead. How could we fail to provide this best of medicine to those who are so sick they lie at home on their beds? St. Justin Martyr, second century. So another very early experience that I had of the Holy Eucharist was of communion to the sick. And that's because my mom, especially for many years, both took communion to the homebound and helped coordinate that up here. And so I am like, I'm in a kind of unique position in this way. I'm in like the first or maybe the very beginning of the second generation of priests, but who had parents that were like real lay ministers who did like real actual stuff right in the church. And so I have an appreciation for the challenges that that often brings, especially at home but also the great gift that it can be for the rest of the church. One of the things that I, um, that I experienced with my mom on this score is very specific, was that um, this, am I doing something to make that? Or what's the? Oh, the, the other one. Good call. Yeah, I knew that. If it likes me. Nope, that's all right. We'll just move here. Okay. Um, so, to be honest, this was kind of a mixed bag. Like, as I got older, I sometimes wondered how great it was to have Jesus writing my mom's verse all the time. And as a priest, I've, uh, thank you, I've, I've found enough, like, old pixes, like, like, like somebody dies and their family shows up and they're like, this looks like a churchy thing. And there's like an old moldy host. So, so we, need, we need to be aware of this. This isn't like an unmitigated success. But, um, but what became very clear very early on was that this thing that we did here and was so important to my family and by now as I'm getting older to this wider community, to many of you, right, that I've known since I was little, that it was so important that even when people couldn't be here, it was important that they stay connected. And so that we would, we would take, obviously, Holy Communion to visit them, and we'd bring the bulletin. And Mom would talk about Father's homily. And, yeah, she'd share some of the parish gossip so that, she, that people would know what was going on with their friends back at church. And we'd connect with these people. I have, have clear and very fond memories of going to visit Mr. Prey, Tim Dempsey, um, and, 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 and old Joe Prey, like this saint in the parish for years, and, and, and the care that this old man, that otherwise we would have no relationship. He wasn't related to the Dempseys, he wasn't related to us, he wasn't, there was nobody, that's why we were there, right? But, but he would dote on the children of the parish as though they were his own grandchildren. The, the parish, that the church, which was the community which gathered around the Eucharist, was in some meaningful way a family. Which is why 35, 40 years later, I can come back and it still makes some kind of sense. Some of you I've never met, but I'm, I still belong here in important ways. I might be a pastor someplace else, but this will always be my home because this will always be where it started. Place to shut down when that's all this communicates. Don't worry, Father, I'm not in the future. <laughs> just, just being honest about this, right? The fruit of the reception of Holy Communion is intended to be ecclesial communion, communion in the church. 
The church makes itself in a certain sense by communion, or rather we're made into ourselves by the gift which comes from Jesus in this way. This became clearer to me once I moved away from home. Um, and the reason for it was, I'd come home, you know, first when I was at Morris, I'd come home, I don't know, once every six weeks or something, and you'd, the college thing, you'd do laundry, you'd avoid your parents, see your friends, and they get one good meal on Sunday before you had to drive back home. But what would mom always send you back with? Leftovers, right, food, from home. Not store-bought cookies, there were cookies, but they'd be mom's cookies, from home. Mom's leftovers from home, which were always way better than the cafeteria at school. Definitely better than what the seminarians could come up with. In the, yeah. Da, da, da. So, 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 so the food tasted better. But more than that, the food tied you to where it came from. You were sharing in the same meal that had been celebrated days before. This was even clearer later when I moved far away from home. Uh, whether I was in St. Louis or Denver or Chicago or later Rome, mom would, at this time of year, at Christmas time, always make up a big package of uh, candy that she'd made for the parish bazaar, especially that divinity, which she'd throw everybody else out of the house to make. And, and she'd send cookies and candies and bars, and she even, you know, with the guys that I lived with, she'd figure out Father so-and-so's favorite and Father so-and-so's favorite. Sometimes she'd forget mine, which was always kind of annoying. <laughs> so then I'd find myself, like, stealing other people's food. But, but, but the reason this was significant, right, was because the, the, the literal taste, the savor of this food which was associated with this place, made this place real and present in a whole other place. And in a certain sense, at least for a moment, mom and dad and sis, and to a certain extension, all of you, became present in a way that you weren't present in the other place before. This is the same kind of dynamic. Now, obviously, it's amped up. My mom sending me a cookie is sweet on a human level, but when it's God who sends the cookie, when it's God who delivers the gift, when it's God who bakes the bread himself and makes it into his own flesh, everything changes. Nothing's ever quite the same. So, how does my relationship to the Eucharist relate to the community to which I presently belong? How does my experience of the Eucharist elsewhere and in other communities affect that relationship with the community to which I belong? It's a really important question now, right? Uh, especially when parish identity and parish membership is more fractured probably than ever before. People bounce back and forth all over the place. I'm in charge of the Hispanic ministry of the diocese, so on a typical weekend, I'm in these two, sometimes three parishes, and I see people that I thought were mine, all kinds of other places. <laughs> And then people sort of crazy me, and I But like, what, what does our experience of Eucharist mean for the community that we claim is primary or essential for our own? Father Bob Hayfler um, was good at correction in a way that a lot of people are not. Um, he could also be rough in correction, but sometimes he managed it right. And we went through a period toward the end of high school where... Um, we were out at Bishop Drum a lot because we had family out there, and so we'd, we'd go out for Mass. And, um, and uh, he pulled Mom aside, and he said, Virg, you guys need to be around St. Teresa more. We haven't seen you enough. And she, poor Mom was mortified. Um, he was gentle, and he didn't 
like do it right in front of me, but I kind of, it was right, he, they were over there and I was kind of over that way. Um, but he, he said, we, we're, we're not seeing you. And she said, we're, we're a Bishop Drum. And he said, got it. You need to be a Bishop Drum. You also need to be here. And so figuring out where here is for us and making sure that in an on-purpose kind of way, we're, we're stabilizing or locating our Eucharistic community somewhere. What does it mean to be part of a community? What does it mean to share the Eucharist with them? And how does that change my experience of community elsewhere? Rather than probe you for questions, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have us go through all three, all the, the following right, kind of reflections, then we'll do the, the, the Q&A bit kind of toward the end. I think that'll be more effective. But sit with this for just a minute. Eucharist and communion. Who does it bond me to? Where am I bound to? The third joyful mystery is the nativity. We're going to focus in this on the mystery of the Lord's presence. What it means for Jesus to be present in the Holy Eucharist, and what it means for his presence to be revealed in Christmas time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be on earth as it is in
as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. My Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us in the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. So, the mystery of the Lord's presence is revealed at the Nativity, not because he wasn't present before, but because the presence was hidden, right? Well, oftentimes, the Lord's presence in the Eucharist seems hidden. I mean, even right now, he's hiding in a golden marble box. You can't see him exactly, but we know that he's there. We indicate it in the presence of the lamp. We show our consciousness of it by genuflecting when we pass the tabernacle or making the sign of the cross when we pass by a church. These are good and pious customs that help remind us of what's already the case. I think I first really became aware, like in a strong way, of the Lord's presence in the Holy Eucharist sometime in high school. I couldn't pin down exactly the moment. I certainly had experienced Eucharistic adoration before. There was a time here, I don't remember how long this went, Barb could probably tell us, maybe some of you can remember too. Toward the end of the Gulf War, we started having this Sunday afternoon, like rosary for peace thing, and, and sometimes there was adoration that was part of that. I remember, because I remember having to learn how to serve it and always messing up what to do with the cape. But, 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 but at some point, this simply became apparent in a way that it hadn't been before. And part of it was simply learning the church's tradition of prayer. Those of you that can remember the pre-Divine Treasures days, poor old Mrs. Daly had the little religious good shop out of her house and mom used to go there and buy things, you know, first communion gifts, that sort of business. And at some point, dawdling at Mrs. Daly's, I found an old prayer book, and I discovered this. Almighty and ever-living God, behold, I come to the sacrament of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I come as one sick to the doctor of life and clean to the font of mercy, blind to the light of eternal brightness, poor and needy, begging the Lord of heaven and earth. Something clicked where I realized that when Jesus was present in the sacrament, we actually address him differently. It's just part of the reason, you know, um, 10, 12 years ago now, uh, when the, the Missal translation changed, it was a really contentious thing, bothered a lot of people, fine. But one unambiguous uh, positive that came out of that was the memorial acclamation, the part of the Mass right after the consecration, so the priest is, is finished with the, the words over the chalice, and he genuflects, and when he stands back up, he cries out the mystery of faith. And it's a subtle change, but it's important. Our grammatical voice changes. So up until that point, we've been addressing God the Father, but in this moment, the people collectively recognize the Lord now present on the altar, Lord, by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free, right? We proclaim your death, O Lord. We profess your resurrection until you come again. We all pause to recognize that Jesus is with us in a way that we weren't recognized before. Well, the priest does the same thing immediately after the Our Father, right? So after the Eucharistic prayer is done, we stand. The priest invites us to share in the Our Father, and he has the short prayer after the Our Father, and then his attention turns to the Lord on the altar. Lord Jesus Christ, you said to your apostles, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not upon our sins, but on the faith of your church. Graciously grant your peace and unity in accordance with your will. So, so, so Jesus is uniquely present here, and this, this presence communicates something. 
in the old days, the way the sign of peace actually worked, right, was the priest would kiss the chalice and then pass the peace to the deacon. So that the idea really was the priest was receiving the peace from Jesus and Jesus was sort of passing the peace throughout the people. Um, now, if we did this, you know, in congregations our size, this would go on forever and ever and ever and ever, which is why it doesn't look that way now. But it's part of the reason that moment of the Mass so often gets confused, right? It looks like it's a sort of, we interrupt this regularly scheduled Eucharist to stop and shake hands right before communion. That, that's not the idea, but, but it's understandable why you get there. So I think it's, it's, it's important to kind of refocus our heads and hearts there. And you can only do that. This only makes sense if what we're all focused on together is his presence on the altar. This is where Eucharistic adoration becomes so essential because when, when the rest is stripped down, when all you have is the Lord present on the altar, there's nothing else to distract you. There's no one else to talk to. <laughs> there's nothing else to do. Moving uh, first into college seminary and later into a religious house, living in, in houses where the Blessed Sacrament is reserved, this changed everything for me. And I found myself spending long nights, often sort of camping out in the chapel, trying to figure out what my relationship was to the Lord in this uniquely configured presence. I, I also experienced, um, especially at the beginning of college, the way in which other people could become present to me through the Holy Eucharist. So my, my second year at college, I lost my best friend from Dowling, committed suicide back here. I was studying in Ireland at the time, and I was heartbroken and devastated, and we couldn't afford for me to fly back from Ireland for the funeral. And I was in the back for a couple of weeks, and I found myself um, downtown Melbourne, kind of wandering the streets one day, not going to class and doing anything I should have. And there was a shop front, um, and it looked and so I went inside. That's obviously doing a strange study of Europe. And it was a perpetual adoration chapel that would be set up like an apple <laughs> it, was, it was in the middle of the chapel center. Um, and that was where I went to go see my friend. I couldn't go to the cemetery back here in Des Moines. I wasn't able to attend the funeral, but I was able to encounter my friend, now dead, please God in Christ Jesus, in Jesus. At funerals, this is a point I often make, especially because funerals are usually pretty mixed communities, you know, Catholics and non-Catholics and all sorts of other things. But when we draw near to the Lord in the sacrament, whether we can receive or not, we're drawing near to those who are not for us. And that's very important. That's very, very important. Not only in a sort of a consoling way, but because the greatest good that we can do for those that we've loved and lost, especially those, you know, that we still got issues with, <laughs> or that we're still working things out with, that's often the place to do it. So when I'm working with, you know, with individuals or families that have lost somebody and, and, and they're working through the grief, the place I send them is the Adoration Chapel. It's the quietest, safest space in which to do that hardest work that we do. And it allows everyone we need to be present, to be present to us all at the same time. So, how do I recognize Christ's presence in the Holy Eucharist? Do I relate, this is really important, do I relate to the Eucharist as a person or as a thing? And this, is a, this is a tricky one, especially for those of us that find ourselves handling 
the Holy Eucharist a lot, either as communion ministers or even as priests. Do I talk about it? Do I talk about him? And when, I, when I'm doing whatever acts of reverence that I do, in whatever way that sort of makes sense, given my life, my body, and whatever else, am I doing this as a sort of liturgical nicety, or am I trying to pay attention to the most important person in my life? What do I expect Christ's presence to do for me, or in me, or with me, both at Mass and when we come for a visit? Do I arrive expecting, or even just willing, to be changed? Or do I expect I'll leave just the same as I always was? fourth joyful mystery is the presentation of the Lord in the temple. The temple is above all the place of sacrifice. So here we'll reflect on the sacrificial dimension of the Holy Eucharist. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and give us our trespasses, as if we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. O oh, my Jesus, 
Forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. I remember very little about the day of my ordination. A lot of reasons for that. Mom was not doing her well. She was able to make it. I put us all in the papers on the board where she was. I was distracted. I was moving to Rome in two weeks. That was also very distracting at the time. Um, uh, and so I honestly, I, that day is a word except one moment in the middle of the ordination right itself. So after the priest is ordained, so the, the laying on of hands and the prayer of the bishop says what kind of does the deed. So as soon as that's done, the guy rises and he's vested as a deacon at this point. His, his clothes are changed, so he's now vested as a priest. Um, his hands are anointed with oil, and then he's given the chalice and the patent, the gifts that are going to be offered, not in general, but they're going to be offered at that, at that mass. And the bishop says to him, the bishop's seated, and the priest is kneeling in front of him, and the bishop hands the gifts on to him, and the bishop says, receive the gifts of God from the people of God to be offered in sacrifice to him. Know what you do and imitate what you celebrate. And I looked up at the bishop and I thought, well, what have I just done? <laughs> this dynamic, though, is not unique to the priesthood. <clears throat> this ritual exchange happens in all of the sacraments. So when you were baptized, remember, a baby's baptized after the deed is done, after the kid's washed, they're anointed, and they're, they get new clothes, and then they're given the instrument of their office. In this case, it's the candle. If you don't believe me, come to Hispanic land sometime. Um, our baptismal candles tend to go in a box and hide in the basement or the attic forever, right? They bring them back out. So our little kiddos, when they come out for first confession, first communion, confirmation, couples will bring them to their way. Priests, all priests, used to carry theirs at their ordination. And most are Hispanic families with your baptismal Why? Well, when we baptize them, what do we say? Receive the light of Christ. This light is entrusted to you to be kept burning brightly so that when the Lord comes, you might go out to meet him. So they literally, they're taking their lamps with them so they don't get left without, right? The notion of the Eucharist as sacrifice is probably the hardest for us to wrap our heads around. I'm also convinced it's the most significant in our time. It is the closest to a distinctively Catholic thing. I'm hedging my bets there on purpose because um, our Orthodox friends would have more or less an identical position on this. But, but, but it's the part that, especially in the States, which is still at least sort of culturally a very Protestant country, it's the part that we miss most. And it is the part that uh, became most obscure um, when it became most common to celebrate mass facing the people and, uh, and when we really tried to emphasize hard the meal aspect of the Mass. It's not that the Mass is not a meal. It absolutely is. It's a sacrificial meal, right? But you've got to have both elements to understand what's actually happening here. This is probably the most important thing that's ever been said about this, and so I want to read it. It's a little dense, but I, I want us to hear it because I don't think we can understand the rest quite right uh, unless we have it. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of the priest who then once offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar 
on the altar of the cross is contained and offered now in an unbloody manner. Now, this is from the Council of Trent. So 500 years ago, more or less. And it was, it was the church's attempt to make, like, real clear the boundaries for sort of what was in and what was out when we talked about the Eucharist as sacrifice. The reason for this was because the Reformers, at the time, were very, very concerned about the language of sacrifice being used for the Eucharist. And there were good reasons for their concern, because in many places, the Eucharist, the sacrificial dimension of the Eucharist was being used basically to exploit poor people and, and, to, and to get them to give the church extra money. Um, and that was a great sin, and the church averted it where it found it. But, but it didn't undo the language of sacrifice, which was literally, is literally, built into the Mass and has been part of the church's tradition from the very, very beginning. Literally. Pray, brethren, that this, my sacrifice and yours, might be made acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. The reason I chose to associate this with the mystery of the presentation is because the presentation of the Lord, this often gets confused, so this is, this is just an olive for your martini glass, but you'll appreciate it in some Christmas variation. So we tend to confuse the presentation with, uh, with what happens on, um, on January 1st. The presentation of the Lord in the temple is not his circumcision. Uh, January 1st, when we all come to the very mother of God, is the feast of the circumcision. They changed the language, I think, because they didn't want people thinking about Jesus as a thing. But, but it just happened, which is really important. Um, and, and, and this moment is very significant in the life of the church and in salvation history because it's the first time Jesus bleeds. The first drop of blood shed for us isn't on the cross. It's on the bema in the synagogue there in Bethlehem, just eight days after he's born. And, and it's there that he officially receives his name, which is why it's tied to Mary's maternity. Okay? Um, but the reason this is important is because that happens right after he's born, and it's tied to circumcision, which brings Jesus into the covenant. The presentation happens on the 40th day. It's what we keep on Candlemas Day, or February the 2nd. And that's a, that's a whole different celebration. But the reason it's important is because it, it reflects a tradition that doesn't exist anymore. And that's the reason we think it's about circumcision. So Jews don't do the thing that happens in the temple anymore because there's no But on the 40th day, the firstborn son had to be brought into the temple and bought back a ransom had to be paid. Why? What, what's the deal with firstborn children? What happens to other people's firstborn children? They got killed, right? So this, this is literally ransoming the life of the child back. Okay? So, so Jesus, who is God, the Lord of Israel, enters the temple that's already dedicated. Now they don't know it. The guy who's working in the shop don't know the boss is showing up in the form of the paint, right? And they're offering turtle doves on his behalf, not recognizing that what they're offering is like the movie trailer for the main event that's literally sitting in the front row. The, the sacrificial dimension of the mass 
becomes first clear at the offertory itself, the presentation of the gifts. And, and there was a time when there were a lot of kind of dumb fights in the church over this. Oh, don't call the offertory, call the presentation. Well, but when he's at the altar, the priest says, we offer you. What is he doing? What is, if anybody can really explain the difference between to offer and to present, I'll give you a gold star. Right? These are not competing ideas. But what is happening here that is different and the reason the sacrificial dimension of the Eucharist is so important, the reason later in life this became so meaningful for me, is because it is tied specifically to this notion of priesthood, which is not only important for ordained priests like Father Raphael and I, but for the priests and people of God. We make an offering of bread and wine, of money and food and, and other goods, right, that we, that, that we offer back out, we make an offering which is presented, prayed over, transformed, and then returned. The gift is given back. This is present in every Old Testament sacrifice. The sacrifice is offered to the priest, the priest say the prayers over it, hallow it, whatever, and then a portion of the sacrifice is offered back to the people who made it. This is why at the Exodus, right, everybody has to eat a portion of the lamb. It's why the Jews to this day will say, those who keep the Passover, everyone who keeps the Passover has been delivered from Egypt. Even though none of them, like no Jew in Des Moines is living in Egypt, right? We've got the same thing happening. So our offerings are made, hallowed, sanctified, transformed, and returned to us. The elements, the bread and the wine, of course, are transformed into the flesh and blood of Jesus. But this is why the voluntary offering that we make of ourselves, signified by our money or whatever else we bring, but, but fundamentally, right, our will, our heart, our head, that's what's meant to be changed. And the change is affected precisely because of the sacrament that's received. God lets us share in the act by which he saves the world. This is the reason the fathers at Trent were so insistent, and they, and, they, and they drew real hard lines around this. Now, we can't say it's just a sacrifice of praise. This isn't just us sacrificing our time, or our energy, or our goodwill to be with God. It's not just a memorial of the sacrifice of Jesus, though it presumes remembering that, otherwise you couldn't do it. Bishop Barron says this, this is very clever. He says, um, the command, do this in memory of me, is the only commandment the church has never failed to fulfill. Everything else, especially priests, we do real badly. <laughs> but that one thing the church collectively has managed to keep, do this in memory of me. So the memorial is important, but what, but what, what gives it its power is that what we're remembering and what is becoming present again is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The whole of his life, death, and resurrection is captured up in this one moment. It's like crystallized for us in this act. And he lets us share in it. This is what full, conscious, and active participation ultimately means. Now, that might be affected by singing important music, by offering a particular ministry at Mass, by engaging in the responses. Or it might be affected, me totally mute on my sickbed, unable to respond, but still voluntarily associating myself with, what, with what's happening at all. One of the uh, 
the hardest things I've had to do as a priest, one of my assignments, about two and a half years, was running an old priest's home in Chicago. And so one of my jobs for a while was to be the guy who had to tell a priest when he had to stop celebrating Mass in public. Like when he got scared or something, right? And, um, and that was, those were very difficult conversations. You think taking mom's car keys away is hard. Nothing for that. But to a man, they got it. They got it. Took a while sometimes, but they would get it because their ability to be present physically, publicly, was not identical with their ability to be united with Jesus' sacrifice on the altar. And the only reason they'd ever wanted to be a ministerial priest to begin with was because that's where their heart was. They wanted to be so perfectly united to the sacrifice of Jesus. For me, as a, as, a, as a parish priest now these last several years, where this becomes most evident to me is at our funerals. In the Christian funeral, right, the, the body of the deceased is brought as close to the altar as they can, that Paul is designed to look like the garments the priest is wearing, so that the person now, now that there's like a period at the end of the person's life, all the little sacrifices they made in the course of their life are now caught up in the sacrifice of Jesus. And they're, and, and they're united as perfectly as they will be, right? for good, bad, or indifferent, as perfectly as they will be forever. And that has been a great consolation to me in the sacrifices that I have to make. So that when I bow over the altar and say, this is my body which is given up for you, I'm doing it in the person of Jesus. It's transformed into the body of Jesus, not the body of PJ, for which you can all be very grateful. And yet, if I'm doing it right, I'm there too, for real. And so are you. Do I really believe that the Eucharist is meaningfully a sacrifice? Some of us, like, this is a thing we just try not to think about, or we think it's old-timey or whatever. I don't, I don't think the church lets us do that. How am I joined to Christ's sacrifice when I celebrate the Eucharist? Do I pay attention to these bits? Like, am I consciously saying, what can I lay on the altar today? What do I need to bring to the altar today? Sometimes they're good things, hopes and dreams. Sometimes they're bad things, worries and anxieties. How am I not? What am I holding back? What am I afraid to offer to God for fear of what he might do with it? Or what he might say to me? What ultimately would I be willing to give up? The fifth joyful mystery, the finding in the temple. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done.
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and it shall be world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. So the finding of the child Jesus in the temple is a great mystery. It's in the ordinary sense, thank you. It's in the ordinary sense a mystery, uh, in that, like at the beginning, they don't know where the kid is. But it's in the kind of stricter, more theological sense of mystery in that um, it's something that can't quite be understood. Why are you here? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house and about my father's business? Well, no. How was I supposed to know? (laughs) Next time, leave a note. Um, That word mystery is where I kind of want our our reflections to close tonight. And and it's because... um, I think it's often misunderstood. It's very, very significant in the life of the church, and I think it's the best way, really, for us to approach this last week of Advent. The great hymn that belongs to these last days is O Magnum Mysterium, the greatest of mysteries. It's an interesting uh, fact, uh, again, another olive for your martini glass at the, the Protestant cocktail party you go to, if you want to really poke your friends. The only time the word sacrament appears in the New Testament is in the fifth chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, it's a passage that nobody likes to read anymore because it begins wise with some word of um, And Paul writes for about seven or eight verses on how he thinks husband and wife relations are supposed to go. But then at the end, he says, This, that is marriage, is a great mystery, a great sacrament, the mystery of Christ and his church. So the Greek word mystery in the Old Testament is used uh, exclusively for stuff that happens in the temple or before the temple in the tent of the covenant. So it's a, it's, a, it's a religious ceremonial thing. But the word is a compound in Greek. The M-Y is M-U in Greek. It's where we get the word mu from. So it means silence. And then mysterious is like an event or a happening. So a mystery is not like a problem to solve. It's like CSI or something. It's... Um, it's, it's an event before which we fall silent. So think something like, I don't know, a captivating vista, the Grand Canyon or something. Or, or holding a baby and getting caught in their face. Or capturing the eyes of your beloved, right? That's the kind of thing that they're after. The reason the word sacrament came into Latin and then ultimately to English was because uh, the Romans... They used the loanword mysterium for a while, but it, it, uh, it, the ending wasn't commuting. So they had this other word, sacraments, that was already in use. And a sacrament was a bit of a different thing. So a sacrament literally is holding a king. 
But it began as an oath that a soldier would swear to his superior officer. So the soldier would kneel down before his, his, his superior and put his hands in his. This is where we get uh, priests and deacons from the bishops now, right? Um, he put his hands in his superior's hands and he swear an oath that allowed him to be shot for his worship. So you shoot the arrow, you back an arrow by running away from the back, which was a big problem in the ancient world. And so, so for the Romans to insist that all their, their soldiers do this was considered an act so brave that people would fall silent when they swore the oath. So if we're looking at mystery under those terms, listen, uh, listen to this line from J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love here on earth, the Blessed Sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves here on earth, and more than that, death. By divine paradox, that which ends life and demands the surrender of all, and yet by taste or foretaste of which alone can what you seek in your earthly relationships, love, fidelity, joy, be maintained, or take on that complexion of reality, of eternal endurance, which every man's heart desires. The only cure for sagging or fainting faith is holy communion. Though always itself perfect and complete, the Blessed Sacrament does not operate completely and at once for any or all of us. Like the act of faith, it must be continuous and can only grow by exercise. Seven times a week is more nourishing than seven times at great intervals. At great intervals. Uh, shortly before my ordination to the priesthood, I was invited to uh, train to celebrate Mass um, in, the, uh, in the Byzantine Rite. So for, for what we think of as Eastern Catholics, um, I worked with the Ruthenians. And so I started to attend for our and I'll never forget the first time I received communion. So they distribute communion slightly differently. Uh, the, 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 the loaf is placed inside a chalice, and the people are distributed uh, by a spoon with sort of a hostess and soaked in a precious cloth, right? Um, but the formula is different. So the priest in the distributes communion says, The servant of God, Dick, receives the body and blood of the Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. And to eternal life. It's kind of a mouthful. They don't have to say people in the churches. But I was startled. I just see communion on the time at this point, right? And I, I believe, certainly, I was offering myself a ordination. I made the final vows of the Christian community. I mean, this is what I wanted to do. But if you said to me, sort of in a generic way, priest says uh, in his own private communion, right? It's because, like, this is not for its own sake. It gets us somewhere. It moves us someplace. It's a directive, right? Um, it, it is meant to effect something in me in the present in order to affect something in the future. And every time I receive communion since, it's been different. 
The morning after my ordination to the diaconate, I assisted at Mass for the first time, or at least for the first time that I could kind of have myself together and remember what was going on. And when, um, when I assisted the priest at the altar, when I went to elevate the chalice, I caught my own reflection in the chalice. And I realized I was caught up in this thing in a way that I had not realized before. And I took that to my spiritual director later that week, and I I told him, and he said, it's a lovely memory, brother, but you always were. You just couldn't see it yet. I have had this kind of experience again and again and again in my priestly ministry, of course, in the actual offering of Mass and uh, Eucharistic adoration and all of that. I've had it in tending the sick. I've had it in kneeling to wash and kiss feet. But where I want to close at least the formal part of our reflections here tonight is with a brief story. And then I'll offer, like, a last set of questions and then, and then let the group talk and then... If nobody does, then we'll just close in prayer. But here's, here's the story that I want to tell you, and I've wanted to tell this here for years, so I'm kind of excited about this. <laughs> so I served a parish in St. Louis for a while called Little Flower, so St. Teresa, right? And it's a lovely little church. Um, uh, it kind of tucked away, uh, almost a hidden tight neighborhood. It's on, I'm kind of cold sack, but like, it's, it's, it's a basically self composed neighborhood. And there are two churches in the neighborhood, which are ours, the little flower, the Catholic church, and then there's a Russian Orthodox church on the street. And it was real tiny, and there didn't really seem to be much going on there. But one night, I was walking, and, uh, and it's over. And so I hopped in. And the priest was there, and he just finished the baptism or something, so he and I are going to say And while we're talking, um, they have a, a, a lady shrine to the side, just like we do. And there's an old lady who's fussing around flowers, and they've never been in a church since some old lady fussing around flowers, right? And, and, and as we're talking, she comes in, and she takes the flowers away, which are not dead. They're not, like, they don't need to change yet. And she just, she, she goes in, she says her prayers before Mary, and then she takes the flowers, and she disappears, like, out of the door. And I said to him, where's she going? And he said, uh, he said, oh, this is a, These flowers would show up in our parking lot 
all the time on people's cars. And they were coming from these little old babushka ladies down the street who were saying their own Nina and the other church. How beautiful is this? That God answers the prayer made for one saint by way of answered prayer to another saint. He's diffusive. Good is diffusive of himself, right? God delights in using these secondary causes, which is why he delights in allowing us to share in the mystery of the Holy Eucharist. Which is why it's important for us to focus on this Eucharistic revival, not just to get people back to church, though that's obviously very important, something we should all be really concerned with, but because what we've been given here, I think the biggest mistake we make, like as church, is in selling God short. So like the, the best that we seem to be able to manage most of the time is, if you want your life to be just a little bit less screwed up, and, 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 and understand your suffering a little bit more and not go to hell, uh, consider coming to church at least sometimes. <laughs> Whereas it would appear to me that what's actually on offer is if you want to fulfill the purpose that you were actually made for and more, if you want to share in God's governance of the universe, if you want to share in the way that God saves the world, and also manage to not go to hell yourself. <laughs> that's what this is for. That's the change that this ultimately can affect. And that's the reason the church will use what seems otherwise stupidly flowery language, right? About what the Mass can do, what the Eucharist can do, what the church itself can affect. Because it's not, it doesn't understand itself as simply some sort of uh, social organization. It is rather God's own creative power at work in the world. I, 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 I caught this best when my niece, Ellie, was just a bit younger, um, especially when mom was sick and I'd be back. Each of us would be going 100 directions. And when it was my turn to cook, Ellie would always want to help in the kitchen. And she was young enough at the time, this was not helpful. <laughs> I mean, she's not especially helpful now, but it was really <laughs> unhelpful then. And... And, and she'd pester, and I'd, I'd try and put her off, but eventually I'd give, right? And so she'd help chop or cut or whatever, set the table. And if I really let her help cook, whatever we were making never turned out as pretty as I wanted. But it was always better. Because now she had a share in it, a stake in it. It wasn't only mine or ours collectively, it was hers personally. And that's what we're invited to here. So these last questions. How do I enter into the Eucharistic mystery? Do I try and solve it or explain it? Or explain it away? Or do I simply let him inspire me? Am I brave enough to fall silent? for the mystery of the Lord's presence in Holy Communion? Do I let God speak to me in the quiet of the Holy Eucharist? And what might God be asking me to do as he draws me closer to himself?